Today, I want you to open your Bibles and go with me to Matthew chapter 21. Just go there in your digital Bible, your paper Bible, Matthew chapter 21, and just open it. <clears throat> I'm going to give you a little bit of context of what happens in the chapter before we get to the parable that we're going to read about today. Uh, you don't have to follow along. You can just hold your page there once you get there and then look up at me and I'm going to talk for just a minute before we get to the parable. I don't want you to sneak a peek. Don't be looking right now to see what the parable is about, okay? Don't sneak a peek. Anyway, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry or the triumphant entry. He's come into Jerusalem. Uh, he comes in and uh, that's, we basically, we have that as Palm Sunday. We talk about them welcoming him in. Then his first act when he gets into the city is not so uh, welcoming or uh, seemingly kind. He goes into the temple and he sees that there are people in God's house buying and selling trinkets. In fact, if you didn't have the right kind of offering, you could buy it from a table there, like the right animal and that kind of thing. They were selling all these, uh, I don't know what else you call them besides trinkets or tchotchkes, you know, like little things. And so Jesus gets very upset. And in one of the most dramatic images of his anger, he literally starts flipping tables and running people out of the building. This is just after they welcomed him <laughs> into the city. So this is the context of what's happening. He then curses a fig tree. He's walking by a fig tree. Um, we had the pleasure recently of having some fresh figs uh, from somebody here in the church. And let me just tell you, they are fantastic. Fresh figs are amazing. And it's been years since I've had some. Jesus is still kind of angry, <laughs> maybe, about the temple money changers and all the people uh, doing what they shouldn't be doing. And he walks by a fig tree and it has no fruit on it. And he's looking for fruit. He curses the fig tree. And in the presence of the disciples with him, the entire tree, mature tree that should have fruit on it, withers in front of them. Then he goes back to the temple. And when he gets into the temple, the chief priests and the elders in the temple hear him beginning to teach. And they come to him with this common question that's asked of Jesus multiple times throughout his ministry. And that is, on whose authority are you here doing these things and saying these things? Because all of them could point to their mentor, their rabbi who taught them. All of them could say, well, I come from so-and-so. I went to the school of so-and-so. And you, you showed up and aren't you the carpenter's son from a little bitty town called Nazareth? What possesses you? What gives you the right to be here in the temple sharing and doing these things? And Jesus does something so interesting. He asks them a question and says, if they get the answer right, He'll answer their question, <laughs> which is really funny to me. They botched the answer, of course, so he never really answers their original question, but instead he tells them three parables. We'll look at one of those today, beginning in verse 28. In verse 28 of chapter 21, Jesus says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first, and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. Verse 29, and he answered, I will not. <laughs> Maybe it was too hot. I don't know. But whatever the reason, he said, I will not. 
But afterward, he changed his mind and he did go. He went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And this son answered and said, I go, sir. Like, yes, sir, dad, surely I'm going. I'm on my way, but did not go. So Jesus asked the chief priests and the elders, he says this, which of the two did the will of the father? They answered correctly when they said the first. Jesus then says to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even though or even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is what I call the parable of the other two sons. Most, if not all of us in this room would be familiar if I told you to go to Luke chapter 15 and I began to tell you a story about a boy who asked for his inheritance and then left and nod at me. Yes, the prodigal son, right? So people the world over, even unbelievers, have heard that story of those two brothers. I've heard probably dozens of messages on that story and on the role of the father and the son that comes home and the son that begrudges the returning son, all the different aspects of the story. But there's another pair of sons that many of us in this room may not have really known too much about or be familiar with, which is this parable that we looked at today. And so I want us to dive into this and I want us to not only see it for what it is, but I want us to be able to take some practical applications from this parable. You say, well, pastor, I'm not a chief priest or an elder. We're not talking about age. Okay. We're talking about elder in the house of the Lord, right? Uh, I'm surely not a tax collector. I didn't get hired as one of the new 87,000. I'm sorry. It just keeps coming out. Okay. Um, and I'm surely not that other thing that got mentioned. So, uh, so how does this fit? Just hold on because I tell you, I believe with all of my heart, there's a meaning that can be applied to your life and my life today. Go back to verse 29. It says the first son told the father, no, but then changed his mind. And let me just say it like this and changed his way. Do you notice what comes first? The changing of the mind. What happened in our testimonies today is there was a moment of conviction in the Holy Spirit in one of those testimonies that caused someone to change their mind. And as a result, their behavior has now begun to change. So, so often we say things like this applies to everything. Uh, I'll tithe once I get a thousand dollars. No, you need to make the decision now to do it and then see the Lord bless you years and years of tithing and maybe seeing little benefits and provision of the Lord. But then God just lands something momentous and monumental in your life as a result. So he changed his mind and then he obeyed, the Bible says. In verse 30, the second son lied to the father. Now, it doesn't say that he lied, but that's a lie. (laughs) 
Can, can I get an amen? Can I get a yes? You understand? Okay. I go, sir, but he did not go. I don't know if something else came up or if he also changed his mind about it. In verse 31, Jesus said, which of the two did the will of the father? And they said the first. And here's my paraphrase. Jesus says, well, gotcha, because you're the second. That's really, that's really the point of what he's driving at. Are there any parents here today that can empathize or relate to this father? <laughs> Anybody? Okay, good. So we're in a good place. We've, we've all had a moment where we've asked them to do a chore and they like cheerfully like, yes, I'm going to, but then they get distracted or they've changed their mind or they forgot. All the different things that can happen, happen. Okay. And on the other side, we've had other moments where we've seen them be obedient immediately. And what does that do? It does not just bring a smile to your face. It brings a smile to your soul. To have a child in your home that obeys and does so immediately is great. Is great. Is great. Okay, sorry. I'm sorry. My kids are in the service, so I just figured I'd make sure that they understood how good it is to their father's heart when they obey. A perfect scenario would be telling the child to do something and they immediately go do it. That, like This is the stuff parents daydream about, okay? This is wonderful when this happens. See, God had sent John the Baptist to prepare Israel for their Messiah, for his arrival, but many of the religious leaders of the day, many of them, not all, but many of them were skeptical, not only about John's message, because he didn't look the part. I don't know if you're familiar with John the Baptist, but he didn't wear the clothes like everybody else did. He didn't eat the meals that everybody else did. He didn't have the house that everybody else did. He was a little bit of a wild wilderness fella out there standing on the bank of a river, dunking people in it and talking to them about a Messiah coming. So they were skeptical about his message and they were skeptical about Jesus being the Messiah. Not only were they skeptical, but many of them outright rejected the message and the Messiah. They refused to recognize Jesus as Messiah. So Jesus equates the chief priests and the religious elders to the second son, the one that lied by saying he would, but then chose not to. Many sinners, on the other hand, willingly responded to John's message. There was a message of repentance, and that's a huge Christian word we use all the time, and it can scare people who don't understand it. So let me just say it very plainly, like we've already talked about it. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of direction. So this son had a change of heart, the, the first son had a change of heart and ended up obeying. And Jesus calls the, the, the tax collectors, those who had been cheating others but repented of it, those who had been doing inappropriate things and repented of it, he said they are the first son, the one that has obeyed. So Jesus has the nerve to tell these who are gathered in front of him that they are the second that, that the second-rate sinners in their book 
because in those days, and even still today, you can't imagine anybody worse than what's on the screen right now, right? It's a joke. I'm sorry if you work for the IRS, okay? <clears throat> but in those days, okay, they, they cheated everybody. So, and then the other group of people were cheating as well. Jesus says that those are coming into the kingdom literally by the droves because they've received the message of John's, his message, the gospel message, and they've received Jesus, belief in Jesus, and they're coming into the kingdom. He says something that is absolutely astonishing in verse 32. If you'll look at that one more time. He says, John came in the way of righteousness, and it says, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And this is the statement that changes it all. It's where he flips it on its head. And even after you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. This is even though I was in a service where they shared testimonies, I still walked out mealy-mouthed and disappointed that God hasn't done what he said he's going to do in my life. That's because he hasn't done it yet doesn't mean he's not going to do it. Amen? I don't know if I said that correctly with the double negative there, but just because it hasn't showed up yet doesn't mean it's not on its way. Amen? Come on, y'all get excited today. This is good stuff. So he gives this warning and says, even after you've seen these things, you still have not changed your mind and believed. Many of those leaders of Jesus' day are what the Apostle Paul, when he writes to Timothy, he writes a letter to Timothy. And the second one, he says this in chapter 3, verse 5 of 2 Timothy. They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. In other words, they look polished on the outside, but on the inside, they're rotten and empty. It would be like opening up a piece of candy that looks great on the outside, and when you slice into that nice big piece of chocolate, you find worms inside of it. Like, that would be devastating for most of us. <laughs> That's what Jesus is essentially saying. They look polished on the outside, but the inside was not clean, was not healthy, was not spiritually pure. And this is because pride was their motivation. They didn't have an authentic relationship with God that motivated them to do the things they did. Here's the secret, and this is something that the kids and grandkids can listen to very clearly. God does not have grandkids. You can't get into heaven just because mommy and daddy believe in Jesus. They couldn't make it into heaven. Jesus has been telling them that now for months while he's there in ministry, saying you can't get in on the coattails just because you sacrificed the right lamb on a Sabbath. That's not what it's about. There's something new that I'm doing. I am the living bread of life. I am the lamb that God sent. So the idea is there that they had pride as their motivation and not an authentic relationship with God. And I really feel like this is a warning, could be a warning to every believer. Because playing the role of a believer and being a believer are two very different things. I don't know if you have ever been guilty 
of playing church. (laughs) At some point in your life, just going through the motions and showing up and you're going through a super hard time and you're struggling in your faith and you're not really sharing the details with anybody. You're not letting anybody pray with you and walk with you through it. You're not seeking the Holy Spirit's help and counsel and you find yourself a shell of who you used to be. I love the words that Jesus gives to the church in Revelation when he says, I want you to go back to your first love. Go back. Let let yourself from the inside out be renovated or revitalized. Don't let the fact that you've been saved for 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever years be something that stands in the way of letting me do something new in you today. So anyone can play the part, but it takes daily work in developing your relationship with God. So I think the warning is for us to be vigilant in our desire to please the Lord and be vigilant in our relationship with the Lord so that we maintain authenticity so that we never get to the place where we're motivated by pride. I can, I can tell you using that story about Billy Sunday, I'm sure that bar owner thought, surely I've got him in a corner. He's not going to take my money, but he pridefully just waved a thousand dollars. He probably was hoping everybody in that room would look at him for the gift that he was giving. In fact, Jesus says repeatedly to the Pharisees, they've already gotten their reward. What they're looking for, they've got, which is the accolades of people or the, oh, you look mighty nice today. Oh, that car is great. Oh, yes. Oh, wonderful. Oh, good to see you. You know, like that kind of stuff. But not having a deep relationship with their creator. You've got to do what our friends said this morning. If you want a healthy relationship with each other, but if you want a healthy relationship with God, you've got to put in the hard work. You've probably heard a statement about good intentions. Can you nod at me? Okay, the road to somewhere is paved with good intentions. Good intentions are meaningless unless they're brought to life by your action. Just think about the New Year's resolution that you don't remember you made. Right? We have good intentions, okay? Uh, maybe my children intended to take out the trash on Tuesday morning when I told them to take it out, and then they didn't. The trash man comes, and our trash doesn't go out, and now every time we open the garage, it smells like trash. It's not a real-life situation, guys. I'm just saying, here's the idea behind it, is that we've got to understand intentions are meaningless. Let me make it plain. It's not the thought that counts. It's your and my obedience. It's a kind thing to say that to somebody around Christmas time. Well, it's the thought that counts, right? No, it's not. Give me the money in the card, lady. Like, that's, right? I mean, like, that's what we're... I'm just being real with you, right? Okay. It's not, well, I thought if I won the lottery, I'd buy you a house. Well, great. Did you even play the lottery? Don't play the lottery. It's bad. I'm just, it was a bad example, but stay with me. Okay. It's not the thought that counts. It's our obedience. Along with that warning from the parable, I want to share with you what I believe are some practical applications to our life regarding obedience to God. 
How many of you would be honest today and say that you've struggled in your obedience to God at one point in your life? Okay, that's 100% of us. Thank you. I think there are some applications here uh, regarding our obedience that we should talk through. If I were to oversimplify Jesus' parable about the two other sons, I would simply say this, one obeyed, the other did not. Obedience to God is of the utmost importance. And this is where it gets challenging. It's not just that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He didn't just come to give you what the old preachers used to say, fire insurance. Hello? He came so that he could be your savior and a word you don't ever want to hear. He wants to be your master or your Lord. None of us truly in our human flesh want to be directed and guided, lorded over, or be the slave of someone. No one. But God wants to do for us something we cannot do for ourselves. And the only way for us to get there is to obey So if we declare that God's son is our savior, that Jesus has saved us, he's cleansed us from all unrighteousness, we've got to allow him to become the Lord or the master in every area of our life. I believe one of the biggest mistakes of the American gospel enterprise over these last several decades has been talking almost exclusively about salvation from hell And rarely about the necessity of the lordship of Jesus Christ in your daily life and the partnership of the Holy Spirit that's available to you after you believe. We've done ourselves and the kingdom a disservice in just talking about fire insurance and not talking about the fact that God really wants to rule and reign, not just on the earth for a thousand years later in eternity sometime. He wants to rule and reign in your life, in your home, on your job, in your marriage, in your finance, in all of those things. If he's our Lord, then we are his subjects, and our obedience is required. Application number one is this. Promised obedience isn't obedience. Now, please don't be insulted for the simplicity of these applications. So I'm just going to say it again. Promised obedience isn't obedience. You can tell me all you want to that you're going to obey. But if you don't obey, then you haven't obeyed. I know this is super simple. Anyone can make a promise, though, and break one. In fact, everyone in this room, just judging on your age, because we have no infants, we have children that have probably even made promises and broken them. Every single one of us, and every single one of us in this room have been the victim on the receiving end of a broken promise. At some point, whether high school years ago or at a job, whatever the case may be, we've been the victim of a broken promise. When talking about the role obedience plays in our lives as believers, we've got to understand it's action that makes the difference. It's action. 
And we serve a promise-keeping God. I won't ask you to turn to all of these places, but if you're taking notes, you can write this down. In Genesis chapter 21, God makes a promise. He's still keeping today. In throughout the book of Psalms, you see the promises of God spoken. To King David, he spoke a promise that he's kept till this day. Come on, somebody. Our God never fails to keep a promise, which is A, one of the reasons why he's worthy of our worship, but B, why he's worthy of us submitting our lives to him and letting him be the Lord. Everything in his written word then becomes a standard for our lives. He has even given us the gift of the Holy Spirit in keeping a promise that's powerful. Read about it. It's amazing. Jesus said, I don't want you to be alone. So I'm going to send somebody to be with you until we get to be together again. That's amazing. When you consider the grace of God in the fact that he always keeps his promise. And one of the goals of the Holy Spirit is to help you obey God. <clears throat> Listen to me, church. And you say, oh, I know this, Pastor. Well, then just shout amen, okay? One of the roles that the Holy Spirit has and one of the things that he's been promised to do is to help us walk in holiness and to obey the Lord. He literally gives you power over sin on the daily because you ran out of power yesterday <laughs> and you need new power today. You need fresh resource today. We don't live in California where they're telling you to turn your lights off. God says, I got more power for you today. Amen. Celebrate church is a spirit empowered church. We believe that every single one of us needs the Holy Spirit in our daily life. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit gives us correction, conviction, he gives us comfort. He gives you encouragement in the midst of the darkest despair of your life. The Holy Spirit can swoop in and the Holy Spirit can meet you on a park bench in the midst of a crazy moment in your life and do something radical in your life that transforms you. The Holy Spirit wants to give you guidance and comfort and power to live a holy life. We believe that there's scriptural evidence of being baptized with the Holy Spirit as a secondary experience after salvation. I, I won't go into the full detail of that today, but let me say it like this. I said it a moment ago. We're a spirit-empowered church. We believe in that with all of our hearts. I don't use the term Pentecostal very often because when I do, people think of dress code. <laughs> okay? Down here in Mississippi, they think of dress code. We believe the Holy Spirit is real. How many of you have been in a service with us before? Okay. <laughs> so we pray, Holy Spirit, what are you saying? I believe even in the midst of today's message, a parable where Jesus calls sin for what it really is and disobedience for what it really is. I believe the Holy Spirit is at work even in this room, in the presence of his people, trying to help us decipher what it is that we need to do. So promised obedience is an obedience. Application number two. Delayed obedience is disobedience. I heard a mama in the back say, that's right. <laughs> okay, 
Listen to me. You say, wait a second, pastor. Now that seems awfully, that's, that's rough. That's pretty harsh. Listen to me. The psalmist declares in Psalm 119, I hasten and will not delay to keep your commandments. Delayed obedience is disobedience. I already gave you the example of garbage day. If they obeyed me on Wednesday, a day that's not garbage day, they haven't obeyed. Sure, they took it to the curb, but no other result has happened. And this is a good warning because I'm going to ask you to be taking out the trash soon, I guess. I don't know. But delayed obedience is disobedience. Delaying in your obedience to God's word and his spirit. Listen to me. Delaying your obedience to God's word and to his Holy Spirit will stunt your spiritual growth and it'll stymie your relationship with God. I'm convinced of that truth because I've seen it in my own life. I see it in the pages of scripture as you go through and you look at examples of people who disobeyed the Lord. And you see, even from the moment in the garden, that relationship with God is broken as a result of disobedience. I can tell you that he's displeased with us when we do not hasten or hurry to obey him. Application number three is this. Immediate action is obedience. You know, I heard uh, this uh, many years ago, and I think it bears true in my life, and you'll probably recognize it as true for yourself as well. That you are responsible for what you hear and what you have learned. I want you to think about that. When you studied the, the driver's handbook and learned when to slow down, when to speed up, you learned what a speed limit sign is, you became responsible for that information. When a police officer pulls you over, he's holding you responsible because you should have known better. You should have obeyed. How many of you have ever gotten a ticket? Raise your hand. Let me see it. Okay, good. I didn't get a ticket recently, but I'm just, it's a good example. Okay. It's a good example. You're responsible for what you know and what you've learned. This plays out in your work environment. It plays out when we talk about traffic laws a second ago. It plays out literally in our everyday life. And there's an application here spiritually as well. The moment you first heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he still saves sinners and that he wants to spend eternity with his adopted family and he wants you in it, you became responsible for that information. You have to make a choice in that moment once you've heard that information, whether you're going to choose to accept it or whether you're going to choose to reject it. The moment that you read God's word or you hear a message on a subject, a moral subject out of God's word, you become responsible for that. I can't tell you the number of people who have said, Pastor, I've never heard a message on tithing like that before. I'm going to start tithing. Because they now know this is what they're supposed to do. And they become responsible for it. The same thing applies in many different facets of our relationship with God. That when we hear or read God's word on a subject, we become responsible for it. The problem is some of us are trying to skate by the skin of our teeth because we're not reading his word enough to know really what it talks about. 
I'm sorry, I'm preaching loud for the church down the street, okay? Listen, it's, you and I are guilty of it. We have all been guilty of it. I want you to listen, you can close your Bibles. I want you to listen to what the prophet Samuel tells King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. Saul, King Saul is all bent out of shape and he thinks he's doing things right. And he's, I mean, essentially he's herding tons and tons of animals in to be sacrificed before God. But he's been living in disobedience. And the prophet Samuel says to him something in chapter 15, verse 22. He says this, so powerful. He says, has the Lord as great delight in your burnt offerings and sacrifices as in your obeying the voice of the Lord? Then he rephrases it just to simplify it. And he says this, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So I'm like Billy Sunday. I don't care if you sin this week. We'll take your tithes. Okay? Praise the Lord. The reason why I say it like that is because here's what Samuel's saying. It, it doesn't matter that you wrote a check to put in the offering if you're living in disobedience in your heart. If you're not living right, if you're not seeking God on a regular basis, if you're not spending time in his word, if you're not developing your relationship with him and with his people, if you're not doing these basic things and trying and striving to make sure that your obedience is on point, then really, what good is it for us to put $20 in the offering? God wants your heart and he wants your heart today. And he wants you to obey. I didn't even plan for that to rhyme, but this is true. It's what he wants today from you. Would you stand? Many people have asked over the years, and we've been in ministry for over 20 years, been to a lot of places and had many experiences. Whenever we talk about obedience to the Lord, there's often a question, and I'm going to answer it for you because it might be in your mind today, which is, okay, well, like, where do I start? Just start. Make today a fresh start. And this is the other tip about obedience that I'll share. There are believers, even in this room, there are some individuals that I've spent time with and I've counseled. And they say, Pastor, like I'm doing the stuff that I'm supposed to do, like reading his word, but I'm not hearing his voice. I'll ask them what, what the last thing is they heard. If it's been a while since you heard the voice of the Lord, chances are maybe you need to remember what he asked you to do. Maybe you need to have the boldness and the courage and the humility to stand up in front of the church and ask for forgiveness. Maybe you need to make some sort of commitment. He spoke to you and asked you to do something and we've been living in perpetual disobedience, not giving him lordship in a certain area of our life or maybe over the whole thing. And I believe today his mercies are new. His mercies are new. So what do you obey? You obey God's word that's written and you obey his spirit. How do you know what his spirit is saying? Like, how do I know that's not just a voice in my head? 
Because if it's telling you something good, it's not your voice. Are you still with me? Look at me. Yes? Okay. The heart is deceitfully wicked. So if, if you had some great idea in your head about blessing someone or sacrificing something or meeting someone for coffee or reaching out to someone or helping someone strengthen their faith, guess what? That wasn't Paul. That wasn't Crystal. That wasn't Amy. That wasn't Sam. That was the Holy Spirit of God. So act on it. Repent. I'll share the same message that John the Baptist did. Repent. Today is a day that you can change your mind and change your direction. Close your eyes with me and let's pray. Father, I pray over Celebrate Church today. Thank you. Thank you for the parable of the other two sons. Lord, we want to be those that are accepted in the kingdom of God, that say yes and do your will and follow and obey your word. God, I pray for each one of us. May the conviction of the Holy Spirit help us today. Lead and guide us to confess our sin, to admit our weakness, to ask for your help. And Lord, to have hope that, Lord, it's never too late to follow through with something that you tell us. God, I pray that in the next few moments as we worship in this last song, you would continue to speak to your people, each one of us individually, to hear what you have to say to us today. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.